Hello, and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from The Lancet Global Health. I'm Lauren Southwell, and this month I'm joined by Orthia Gray and Dr. Kevin Akuta, both of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation based in Seattle, Washington, USA. They are both co-authors of a systematic analysis on the burden of bacterial antimicrobial resistance in the WHO African region during 2019. So in this paper, you've presented estimates of antimicrobial resistance across the WHO African region. Why do we have to rely on analyses such as yours? What does your work add that national surveillance systems maybe can't provide, Orsia? So what our analysis provides is, to our knowledge, the first comprehensive assessment of 88 key pathogen drug combinations, as well as the fatal and non-fatal burden of resistance for these combinations, firstly, those that are associated with resistance, and secondly, the burden that is attributable to resistance. Given our presentation of results, not only by these key pathogen drug combinations, but also by location, by age, as well as the site of infection in the body, our analysis provides a comprehensive starting point for making critical public health policies. National antimicrobial resistance or AMR surveillance systems are extremely important and necessary for our work, and we do include them. And we leverage that information and combine them with other data sources in order to come up with our estimates. Because certain national surveillance systems may be limited in their scope in terms of what priority pathogens they sample and what antibiotics that they test. And so what is important is that in our work, we are standardizing across these sources. Yeah, I, I think just to add to that, um, yeah, the, the surveillance systems are, are critically important and very helpful in our work, um, like major data inputs for our, for our models. Um, one of the major limitations is you can't really compare country against country. Um, so a data source like Glass, which is uh, incredibly useful, um, if you look at the uh, resistance data in South Africa versus something like a, a place like Nigeria, uh, you'll see just the culture of culturing in those two countries is very different. Um, so it's hard to directly compare in those data sources uh, what the burden of antimicrobial resistance really is. Uh, and our uh, estimates sort of uh, account for that and allow for country-to-country comparisons. That's really wonderful. Thank you. Super insightful. So they, as you've mentioned, there were multiple varied sources from which you obtained data, and we've spoken about surveillance obstacles in this region. Could you speak a bit more about the quality of the data that went into your model? Are we getting the complete picture or are pieces missing? With any estimate, pieces are, are missing. That's sort of the nature of the global health estimate game. Even something as fundamental as like how many people were born, died, or are living in a given location uh, has some uh, assumptions or modeling that goes into it. Uh, the question is how much data are missing. And um, if you think of these estimates as like a puzzle that's being solved, uh, an estimate of population number or death and fertility has a lot of pieces uh, with which we can get a good estimate of what the picture is. Uh, the limitation with antibiotic resistance um, in this region, and really every region, is a lot of the data are piecemeal. Um, so even in a high-income country like the U.S., the data for microbiology are siloed from um, outcomes data, uh, which is a, a major barrier to producing these sorts of estimates anywhere. Uh, when you add to that sort of the sparsity of data in the region, it gets challenging. The specific data that we need are antibiotic susceptibility data. Uh, which is largely done through phenotypic susceptibility testing in a microbiology lab. There's a lot of uh, quality control and quality assurance that needs to happen 
to make sure that those estimates are accurate. Um, and that's challenging to do in, in the region. Um, we tried really hard to be explicit that the data are sparse. Um, that's one of the major uh, discussion points throughout the, the paper. Um, and we try to be explicit in, in two major ways. One, we talk about the number of isolates that are available for each step in the process, the number of countries that had no data for a given step. Uh, and then we, we try to be explicit through our uh, uncertainty intervals, which is how wide or, or confident we are in a specific estimate. Um, and so the through those, we, we hope that we convey that data sparsity is a, a major issue. Uh, building sort of capacity for surveillance and, and microbiology is one of the key, I think, takeaways of, of the paper and estimate. So one result that I certainly found surprising was that despite the fact that infection-related mortality rates were highest for the WHO African region compared with other WHO regions, the proportion of deaths that were associated with antimicrobial resistance were the lowest. Why this discrepancy between infection-related mortality and overall burden of antimicrobial resistance mortality? So the infection-related mortality is just one part of what uh, goes into the overall burden of antimicrobial resistance mortality. So you also need a prevalence, a certain prevalence of resistance within a given country. So uh, as you correctly identified, if no one is dying from infections, then no one is dying from resistant infections. And we have a lot of infectious disease burden in the WHO African region. But what we don't see is a lot of the prevalence of resistance. So we see very low levels of resistance actually present in the population. And so actually in this case, you see that that high amount of infection-related mortality is overcoming that very small amount of prevalence of resistance to create a large AMR burden. But that is not the case in other countries. So you see much higher prevalence of resistance in high-income regions, areas where you have a lot of prescription use of antibiotics. But other drivers of prevalence of resistance also come quite uh, impressively from agriculture and utilization of antibiotics there. So in the paper, you mentioned that you can't discount the effects of selection bias in passive microbial resistance data. Does this mean that some people are more likely than others to be identified as being affected uh, by antimicrobial resistance in the WHO African region? And if so, how can this bias be handled? Yes. Yeah, so like Kevin mentioned, data sparsity and um, data bias is prevalent in our work and in antimicrobial resistance in general as a field. And so when you think of passive microbial surveillance, I we often think of health systems that typically receive reports from hospitals or clinics. And so this tends to bias the data in a couple of ways. So firstly, it's data sampling. If someone is going into the hospital, then they're already sick enough to be there. And so we're getting a bias in terms of the severity of the infection. And then you also have a bias that comes from the individual hospital or clinic sampling practices. Are they culturing everyone that comes into the hospital or are they only culturing certain samples that re they receive if they suspect infection. And so through that together, these passive surveillance reports tend to be biased. So yes, uh, certain people might be more likely to appear in these sources. As far as overcoming this bias, one way that we do this is through utilizing a culmination of many sources together. And so we do this process called crosswalking, and we actually did this for um, tertiary hospitals, which are often thought to be uh, university hospitals or hospitals that see very severe infections compared to non-tertiary hospitals, so hospitals where um, someone might actually go to receive general care, so like a general clinic. Um, and what we did is we created matched pairs between these sources, 
and utilize some regression tools. Um, one known is known at IHME as a meta-regression tool called MRBRT. You'll see that often in our papers. We also fondly call it Mr. Burt. Um, and that way we could identify sources of bias and then adjust the sources that were biased down to match the levels of those that were less biased. It kind of speaks to the culture of culturing in a, in a location. So uh, in some places, people are given antibiotics syndromically. So you come in with a syndrome that looks like pneumonia or sepsis and you just treat it. If they get better, great. Uh, if they don't, then they may be transferred to a tertiary care center. And at that tertiary care center, they may get uh, a blood culture. Um, so in that situation, you're only getting blood cultures in people who fail to respond to the empiric or initial antibiotics. And so you're selecting for people who had treatment failure. And we argue that that would, and I, I think most would agree that that would introduce some bias to the prevalence of resistance estimates. And so we do exactly what Athia uh, mentioned. We, we do the crosswalk to the data sources that do have the community um, health centers or the, the primary health centers where um, cultures are done relatively routinely um, and try to uh, account for that bias. So you suggest that high antibiotic consumption was associated with lower antimicrobial resistance burden in some countries. Where do you think the antimicrobial resistance is coming from, if not via this antibiotic consumption? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And um, I think it's a point or a, a finding that was surprising to a lot of people because it seems paradoxical. Um, I think the thing we should clarify first is that in these locations with lower antibiotic consumption, if you were to get infected with a bacteria, it's actually more likely to be a susceptible bacteria than a resistant one compared to a location with high antimicrobial consumption. Um, and then the thing that's sort of unique to this region is that higher antibiotic consumption was associated with better healthcare quality and healthcare access, which is not really the case in, in many of the other regions we saw. Um, so what that means, we're given these two things, uh, we think the trend is, is kind of multifactorial. It, it speaks to the sheer volume of infections. There are just so many uh, infections that uh, even with a relatively low prevalence of resistance, there's a, a high burden of resistance. Um, and then the limited options from an antimicrobial standpoint when resistance is present. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about stewardship as a solution to antibiotic resistance. I think we need to be clear that stewardship doesn't just mean restricting antibiotics or like policing antibiotics. Stewardship really means that we value and take care of the shared resource, but use it when it's needed. So I think what we're seeing in this region is the other side of stewardship, where we're not getting antibiotics to where they need to be. Um, and then another point that Athia kind of raised is that antibiotic consumption that we describe as human consumption, um, it's been convincingly described uh, elsewhere that the majority of antibiotics are actually used in agriculture and animal husbandry. And that may be a driver of resistance in these locations with low human consumption as well. It's really interesting to know. Thank you. So lastly, how can your estimates be used in future research and to inform clinical practice? There are a couple of ways that, in terms of informing future research, uh, at the very least, we hope this could help spur discussion about the need for development and implementation of effective uh, national action plans. Um, I think it can help inform some priorities in terms of uh, drug development and uh, vaccine development or vaccine implementation. 
And I think those are kind of the direct or sort of obvious implications of this kind of work. I think one of the less obvious ones is that it can add to the urgency of some fundamental kind of community health building things like uh, access to clean water and sanitation and implementation of available vaccines. Uh, it helps to add to the conversation around these things or reframe it from just an issue affecting the community without access to water and sanitation to something that has the potential to uh, affect everyone. So uh, in these communities where there's no uh, access or limited access to water and sanitation, uh, sort of a petri dish or, or allows, creates an environment where there's uh, a potential for the next superbug to emerge. And once that superbug emerges, it's really just a matter of time before it's on you know, your doorstep. So it kind of reframes these issues uh, as something that's potentially directly uh, going to affect you or, or your family members uh, in the future. And then in terms of clinical practice, you know, aspirationally, we'd hope for these estimates to be precise enough, uh, both from a like certainty standpoint and from a geographic standpoint to inform empiric antibiotic use. So when someone came in to uh, the hospital with a pneumonia, they could someday, hopefully, look at these estimates and say, you know, these are the most likely bugs in this location. And these are the sort of resistance profiles of those bugs. So I'm going to choose this antibiotic to treat the pneumonia before we have any culture data. Um, but I think we're a ways away from that level of precision. Thanks again to both Orthia and Kevin for speaking to me today. You can read their current research online now at thelancet.com. Thank you for listening. Remember that you can subscribe to this podcast any place you usually get them.